I'd been talking to someone over this course of the month about the series we've been doing and, and every week uh, they were there for two weeks and then the other week they were able to listen to it on, online. Who's ever listened to a sermon online? Caught up? Yeah, they're pretty good, pretty easy to access. Uh, says does a good job there and uh, makes it easy for you. But uh, I said to this person the other day, this was supposed to happen last week and something came up and they couldn't make it. And then so I said, righto, do you want to do your testimony this week? And they said, yes, and I can prove that because it's in the, the schedule, isn't it, Jamie? They said, yes, so they were going to be here. And uh, I get a message this morning saying, you're going to hate me. I'm sick. I went, oh, no. She said, I'm not even going to go to school tomorrow, I think, because uh, her f- throat's really inflamed and she's got one of those killer headaches and things. So Sarah Marshall uh, apologizes for not giving this herself, but she said she will send it through. So let me read this. Is that all right? It's a testimony of what's happened over the last month. It says, So this is Sarah, so I can't do Sarah's voice, so you've got to try and imagine it in your mind. I have thoroughly enjoyed the I Choose series. I have loved the simplicity and practicality in particular. Things we should know, but worded in ways out of love and guidance to help remind us that God's ways are better. Not only did all the topics make sense and resound with me, but I felt a massive sense of relief as I listened and put some of the lessons into practice. I particularly love the control week. God has been taking me on a massive journey the last few years of not only motherhood, but accepting who I am as God made me in Jesus. The whole issue surrounding self-worth and believing I am valued and favored. But this past year, I faced a massive challenge that significantly impacted on every aspect of my life, my walk with Jesus, my area of ministry, and my relationships with those around me. The enemy went to town using what had happened. It left me feeling broken and lonely, doubting everything about myself and those around me. Over the last few months, I have tried to fix things and move forward. But each time progress is made, the enemy seems to throw something new at me that undermines everything again. During the I Choose week on surrender over control, I was massively convicted that even though I thought I had given God control, I hadn't given him all of it. I saw a picture of myself handing over a large, overweight backpack, but even though I gave it to Christ to take, I still had a hold of one of the straps. The next day, I had a big pray and cry on the way to work, and I simply said, God, I'm done. I can't do this. I want you to have complete control over the areas of relationships and friendships. Complete control. I surrender everything. I pictured myself cutting that strap I wanted to hold on to and throwing my end away. I know God's timing is perfect and will not always be an immediate fix. But that day I saw blessing in the areas I surrendered. I felt less burdened and less stressed. I had an overwhelming sense of peace. The enemy has tried to undermine it constantly since, even the same day. But I am holding strong, knowing that I want God in control and that his ways are better. Amen. Another good testimony. Hey, God's pretty cool. And, and that's just a, a short testimony of what God's done in one person's life. And I believe God's done a massive thing through the lives of all of us as we've practically applied his word. And that's a, an, a, a, uh, an encouragement to us all, I'm sure. Uh, so sideline to that, sort of, I suppose, is a great segue. With Sarah being sick and I've got three kids at home sick and I'm sure... Um, Christina said her son's in hospital sick and, and Greg's got a, 
an old friend who's in hospital sick and he's a bit sore himself. And there's, I'm sure there's a few others here that are a bit sick, yeah? A little bit under the weather, a little bit even tired, like um, carrying something in your body. Or maybe there's someone in your family that's not doing too well. How about we just stand for them at the moment? We'll just pray for them, hey? It's just as we're worshipping, God dropped this into my spirit and he took me to Philippians this morning as I was reading it. I didn't get to this part before I came to church, but he, he just said Philippians 4 and I I love this passage in Philippians 4. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds listen to this, in Christ. Think about that. When we get sickness against us or when we get someone in our life that comes down really ill, all of a sudden our mind loses its peace and it takes journey and all of a sudden we're not stayed on Christ. But God takes away anxiety and he fastens us into Christ. That's my prayer this morning. If you're reaching out for someone, just raise your hands. Father God, we just bring these people to you. We lift them up to you, Lord God, for you know exactly where they are at. The burden they carry, the sickness that is in their body. Whether it be a physical or an emotional need, Lord God, right now we just lift them up to you. Because Lord, as we have heard, we cannot control the situation, so we surrender them to you. You are the God who heals. In fact, you are our healer. Jesus, we declare your life over them. We thank you for the blood that you spilled and the stripes that you bore, that they may be set free. We thank you, Lord, that you have the victory and it will be outworked in their flesh in the name of Jesus right now. For those who are bedridden, we lift them to you and we say, Lord God, be their peace, be their comfort, remove their anxiety and minister directly to their spirit now. Lord, we pray that joy would fill their lives and it would be that which brings healing to their bones. Lord, I pray a magnificent laughter over those who are sick now, that they would laugh at the enemy who is trying to take them down, that in the sight of sickness they would laugh and they would turn to you with a heart of joy. God, we declare, take away our anxiety. Help us to be stayed upon Christ. Fix our mind on that which is true and unshakable and unchangeable. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Take that by faith. Take that by faith. And if you can put your hands on them today, go and put your hands on them and release healing over their lives in Jesus' name. Amen. PowerPoint up and we'll get into the word. What do you think? I'm already blessed. A great time of worship, uh, a great testimony. And then we got to pray and believe that God still does today what he has always done. So we can go home. No? Okay, cool. That's good. Because I'm glad that you said no. Who said no? man ah, all right very good we're looking at a new series called jesus church and if you read your newsletter that came out today there's just a little bit in there talking about what uh, what we see as the church but today we are looking at this sense that jesus church why it's the hope of the world and it's sort of the catchphrase for the whole season of, as we walk through this month uh, why it's the hope of the world and and uh, I don't know. Do you know that your life, who God's called you to be, and the body that he's placed you into, 
he's called you to be the hope of the world. Mm. Think about that. So we all often grab that and we'll project that onto Jesus. Jesus is the hope of the world. <laughs> but Jesus chooses you, his church, to represent him as the hope of the world. Make sense? So Jesus' church is talking about us. And today we're going to look at this very next uh, slide, if I'm on. There we go. I think we're on. It's the loving and united family of our Heavenly Father. It's the loving and united family of our Heavenly Father. So this is sort of just to give us a, a, an introduction and a look at what the church is, but ultimately to look at this sense that we are loving and united, two, two rocks that we have founded upon, amen? And uh, just as we go into it, I reflect on the pa- uh, purpose over popularity, the uh, surrender over control, the discipline over regret, and the important over the urgent, the four topics of the last series about choice. And when God, when God had directed me to, to lead the church through that series, and now I believe even this series, I believe God's trying to set us up for a pattern because He wants us to start thinking right so that we can start acting right. Does that make sense? Because we'll never act right if we're believing wrong. What will happen is if we're believing wrong, we'll actually believe and do what is wrong. Because out of the heart comes. True? So if we're believing wrong, then what happens is we express wrong. So that's why he's taken us on this whole sense of surrender over control, discipline over regret, important over the urgent, purpose over the popularity. Because if we can think about those things, if we make the right choices, we position ourselves into a place to start believing right. And then we start to see what the church actually can be. And we can be the family that is filled with love, the family that is filled with unity, the family that can express God to a world that so needs him. But first of all, we've got to believe right. You see, we've got to stay our mind on all that Jesus has put us into. So thinking about that as an introduction, I thought, well, okay, think about your entry into the church, Steve. Not the, the, not the global church as were the day I was saved, but my entry here into what was first known as Crusade Family Church and my entry then into what has brought me to be. And I think about that and I pondered upon that and, and, and I want to share these few things. I joined the crusade in 1999. A long time ago, isn't it? Yeah. You know, Y2K was around, the fear of everything going off, and um, everyone thought that Skynet was going to come online and we were all going to die. But uh, anyway, that was the year of 1999, and that was the year that I chose to come and, well, I actually chose to believe God and follow God and to enter into what I believe He called me to as a family to come into this church. And I, I believe God led me here. Even though there was a pull of family already in this church, I believe God led me here for a purpose. You see, you've got to believe in your heart that God has planted you into the church that you are in. If you can't believe that God has planted you here, then you'll never grow into who God wants you to be. You see, and then after that, I I thought, well, okay, it's in this place, it's in this church that I've grown the most in my Christian walk. Okay? Now, that's an important thing in my life. How about yours? Have you grown the most in your Christian walk in this family? And if you haven't, then the question might have to be reflected, have I sown myself in the way that a tree sows its roots down as deep into the wells and to find that artesian water? That's the question, see? One leads to the next. And if one hasn't happened, we've got to 
go back one level. Then the third thing I thought was, until I joined this church, I, I ran from God. I ran from the calling of my life. Who can, who can be honest and say they've done that? Yeah? Who's run from God? Who's still running from God? All the hands go down. Yeah? Who's still running from God? So it was when I joined this church that, that it was the decision. I said this to someone the other day. It was interesting. For about six months, I, I didn't make any connections in the church other than my mum and my grandmother. And it was a significant thought. And the very weekend that I chose, my wife and I chose that this is it. We settle in our heart. This is the church. We believe God and we're going to stay here. The next week, Pastor David Wright called me and said, let's have a meeting. First contact I'd had with the pastor. Very interesting. Six months, almost to the day, I made a decision and God opened a door. Have you made a decision in your heart? Then I thought, okay. So, so I ran from my calling and then God opened a door the moment I said, I'm going to plant myself in. And it was here that I discovered what I was created for. Here in this church, I discovered what it was to belong to a church family. Up until that point, I'd run from God. I'd run out of church and I'd blame the church for lots and lots of things. But God done a healing work in my life as I let go, as I surrendered. As I came to this place, say, okay, God, I'm yours. And God made a transformation. He changed my life. And he led me on this journey to today. How about yours? Have you reflected on what the church is in your life? Has the church been a, a, a pinnacle or, or a, a beacon of hope as you think about your Christian journey? <clears throat> Question for you. <clears throat> Excuse me. What kind of family could we look like if God is allowed to shape us as he desires us to? Key points in that. First of all, it's Jesus' church. So we've got to give him control over what he wants to shape his church to look like. You know? And over my life, I've tried to shape the church the way I wanted it to look like, and I always failed. I always came up short. I always found frustration and I always found that it was everyone else's fault but mine. But you see, the moment I let go and I gave surrender, I surrendered to God and I gave control to Him, I saw the church in a different light. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what kind of family could we look like if God is allowed to shape us as He desires to? The best description, and, and this, I'm actually taking a lot of this from, from the book of, um, it's actually called, what we're calling it, Jesus Church. It's written by our national chairman and it's a collection of sermons and notes from conferences that we've all put together and then he's put it together into a book, a collection of four teachings that are really shaping who we are as a church and who we are as a movement. And, and these are the kind of questions that were asked and these are the questions that were addressed. The best description of the church that we can find is actually found in Acts chapter 2. Yep. Those of you that were in the old days back in Driver, you remember we did a couple of series a couple of times over a year called Acts 2. And we wanted to see what God had to do. And this shaped my life and shaped what God was doing in me. And I know it's shaping who we are. This is a, a translation from the message. It says in 41, That day, about 3,000 took him at his word, were baptized and were signed up. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal and the prayers. Everyone around was in awe. All 
who, those wonders and signs done through the apostles. And all the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. <clears throat> they followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home. Every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful, as the, they praised God. People in general liked what they saw every day. Their numbers grew as God added those who were saved. It's a very great description of the early church, isn't it? Acts chapter 2, Paul reco- uh, Luke records this sense as he historically viewed it, as he researched and as he looked at it, and as he witnessed even with his own eyes the things that were going on. Luke records this quite profoundly. But just before this, Luke records something that's quite significant to us as a movement, quite significant to us as a church, quite significant to the belief of the Pentecostal church in, 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 in its entirety. In verse 38 and 39, it actually says this, and I'll put it up there so you can read it. Peter said, change your life, turn to God and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so your sins are forgiven. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is targeted to you and your children, but also to all who are far away, whomever, in fact, our Master God invites. Luke tells us that repentance, water baptism, and baptism in the Holy Spirit are the first steps to get us into and established in God's kingdom. Now hear me when I say that. It's not the first steps unto salvation. It's the first steps into the kingdom and into, unto the full works and purposes of what God has for you. You see, salvation is by faith alone. We get that. But you see, if we stop there, we miss something that is entirely beautiful and gifted for the church for this latter time. Not this time that we're entering into, but the end times that God has called from the birth of the church. And that is the gift of His Holy Spirit. You see, Luke records it there because he wants us to see that these three things are the basis of our growth in our Christian walk individually and the basis of our growth as a church body united. Because without the witness of the Spirit in our life, we will never be drawn to unity. Then in verse 42, like we've already read, he lists the four indispensable. I can take you back there if you like. Verse 42, he lists those four very uh, indispensable habits that are necessary if we are to develop properly and remain on fire for Jesus. See, it's about development. It's about remaining on fire. But you say, how do I remain on fire, Pastor Steve? Well, it's not by works, is it? Because if you work, what you do is you work yourself into a tire, not into a fire. So it's actually by trusting and resting in the Holy Spirit and the gift of grace that is bestowed upon your life. So, so you don't remain on fire by working for it. You remain on fire by resting in who you are and by the gifts of who the Holy Spirit is. Okay, so he says these four indispensable habits. I'll go through that really quickly there so we can get up to them. Pastor Bill writes it like this. And I'll read it to quote him. Luke is saying that these first Christians remained ablaze for God and did not let their fire become a mere flicker because they wholeheartedly devoted themselves to some key spiritual disciplines. In the midst of all the activity around them, 
these brand new believers set aside specific time. I'll see if I can get this to work. Specific time to learn, to fellowship, to worship, and to pray. And their persistent attention to these critical disciplines paved the way for the mighty works God accomplished through them. See those simple disciplines, the key foundations of the church to learn. What were they learning? How to cook? Or were they learning the Word of God? Were they just fellowshipping with their neighbor? Or was it intense? Was it purposeful? Was it for something that God wanted to do in their life? Was it worship just to worship whatever because we were created to worship and whatever we put our thoughts and focus to will worship that? Or was it intentional worship of the Creator God? And then lastly, was it prayer? Was it prayer for, for the next big thing? Was it prayer for the Audi or the Ferrari sitting in the driveway? Or was it prayer for the purposes and the advancement of the gospel? Intentional prayer. I think the word that stood out to me is persistent attention to learning the word. Persistent attention to fellowship. Persistent attention to worship. And persistent attention to prayer. They persisted. They continued. They did it entirely. Luke is also implying that the evidence of true conversion is a wholehearted commitment and devotion to Jesus and to a localized Christian community like the one in Jerusalem. They were connected to this local church immediately upon conversion as only in the living community of a local church can someone personally grow and ministry development can happen in a balanced and healthy way. Does that make sense? Intentionally, they found their their life drawn into the purpose and fellowship of the local church. Because nowhere else are they going to learn what maturity is unless they're rubbing shoulders with other Christians. Nowhere else are they going to understand the deep truths of the word unless they're rubbing shoulders with other Christians. Because what God makes available to you, God doesn't make available to them. Why? Because together we come and we get an understanding of who God is. He will reveal himself to one person differently than he reveals himself to another. Okay? And that's important to understand. And that's why we will grow and develop in the balanced way when we are submitted to a healthy church. So when we closely examine Acts chapter 2, verses 43 to 47, Luke describes the results of the devotion to Jesus and their commitment to one another as members of the Jerusalem church. Firstly, they had a deep respect for the things of God. And they operated a miraculous ministry where the sick were healed and those bound by evil spirits were delivered. That's verse 43. So when a church pushes and desires those things, it's actually a healthy desire because it was in the first church. The next one, they experienced a dedicated unity that released their collective strengths and were materially unselfish, which revealed how selfless and loving they had become. Now that's a really hard one because there's no way that we now say that you should go and sell everything and come and live in a commune. We know that doesn't quite work the same as it did in the early church. But who's been blessed by another church member? 
Who's, been, who's experienced the joy of blessing another person who's in need and struggling? Yeah? You see, we, we do it. It's a part of who we are. It's a part of the, the witness of Christ in our life. The next one, that was verse 44 and 45. They saw themselves as full-time Christians and part-time everything else. There's a big one, isn't it? Meeting as a large group and also in small groups and were known for their generous and hospitable way of life. Verse 46. They were known means that it was beyond the church boundary. Though to be known was the actual, their, their name had started to become famous. Why? Because they were full-time Christians and part-time everything else. Which means in your workplace, in your school, you are first and foremost God's agent before you are the agent of your boss or manager. That's interesting, isn't it? Because if we want to prosper in every area of life, God says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. That's verse 46. Then we go on. They were dependent upon God, always thankful, and were respected by their non-Christian neighbors. Verse 47, the first half of that. Are you respected by your neighbors? And lastly, they experienced a God-ordered growth, a pattern as people were giving their lives over to Jesus on a daily basis. That first miracle of 3,000 souls is an amazing thing, and you can do a study on that one day. That was just the miracle provision of God right there, an instant church, church birth. We know that was 3,000 men, so we could be talking five, six, 7,000 people instantly like that, gave their lives to Christ. Because when God talks about salvation, he always talks about in a sense that it comes upon you and your household. Right? So we've got to understand that God desires your household to be saved. He desires your neighborhood to be saved. He desires your town to be saved, your city, your region, your area. So God's pattern is that daily he would add to our number. But I don't see daily people making decisions for Christ. So this is one of those hopes that the church can be if we would see that we could put some things in order. So we make the right choices and all of a sudden we start to see the church in a new light. Does that make sense? I doubt we can find a better description of church life. And I believe Holy Spirit is highlighting this in our growth plan for the year. He has had us on a journey of seeing these choices and how they affect us and how they challenge us to choose Christ over our circumstance. Who wants to see the banner of Christ lifted up over this city? Yeah? How can we do this? How can we as a church family look more like the Acts 2 model? Has anyone ever asked that question before? Or are we happy doing what we're doing? Because I'm not, just being honest. I love the fact that we have an amazing church. I, I love the fact that I've grown and I love the fact that you're growing and the conversations that we have and prayer life and worship life and that is all coming together. And I love that and I trust God in that. But there's just something in me that says there's got to be more. There's got to be more. Yeah. Do we long for the day that God adds to our number daily? How can we, as a church family, look more like the Acts 2 model? And second question is, what things can hinder, hinder us sorry, 
from mirror, mirroring the family portrait God envisaged, envisaged, I can't even say that word, when he thinks of us. Someone else read it for me, please. Someone else, come on, nice and loud. Mm. Thank you. Awesome word. What things can hinder us? See, God's picture of us is very different to our picture of us. And I heard someone pray that up here this morning. That was pretty cool. Pretty cool. So how can we as a church family look more like the Act 2 model? Not by working for it, but by trusting God. And what things can hinder us from being the mirror God wants us to be? Hmm. So if we see this passage out of Acts as being a good description of what the church can look like, because it's happened. We've seen it happen. But I don't think it was meant to stay in the annals of the world. I don't think it was meant to stay in the pages of black and white. I believe it was meant to continue throughout all of church history. And I believe it's going to continue to grow and it's going to be seen throughout all the earth as we grow forward and grow and we see God's kingdom here. So if, God, if Acts is the description, then the best prescription of the church is actually found in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul gives us a great example. Ephesians 4, and this is how Paul would describe the church. In 1, he says, and again, this is the NIV. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That continues and shows us a little bit more of what the church looks like. But these, verse six quest- these first six statements, these first six passages, these first six scriptures remind us that it's about unity and love. See, I can think what it would look like with 7,000 new Christians. Can you? Can you think of what it would have been in the book of Acts as they started to run out of food and the widows were being neglected? You see, the apostles soon got wind of their trouble and they instantly organized seven people full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom to go and to serve and to distribute food evenly. See, so you can start to imagine what the first church looked like as it brought with it problems from the world. But see, God transforms. Christ changes. He brings about a different way of life. And sometimes that takes time. So even though it looks like a very beautiful thing, we still see later on as Paul sent out and writing again, even further along, we could be talking 40 or 50 years after this, he's still writing about unity and love he wasn't assuming that the ephesians had it he was saying devote yourselves to this right so we can see that this is something that throughout church age has been something that god is highlighting and continuing because there's something that is significant in it for the truth of the gospel to be truly felt there's seven characteristics that reflect this family likeness that we can draw from this passage of Scripture. I'll put them up there so you can write them down if you're taking notes. The first one is, we reflect the family of Christ when we are filled with humility. 
This has to do with our attitude toward ourselves. Now I have to move through these quickly because we haven't got a lot of time. And each one of these deserve a series in their own right. To understand humility, you can spend your entire life through them. And all these other words, we can spend our entire life trying to unpack what God means when he talks about humility. But for today, we've got to look at this sense of if we truly want to reflect Christ to a world and be a hope to the nations, what we must do is truly be humble. And this relates to our opinions of ourselves more so than toward other people. It's not a humble thing to beat yourself up and tell yourself that you're horrible. Okay? But discovering who God wants you to be is more important. Pastor Bill, being a Greek man, puts all the Greek words in there, so I'll put them up there for you. All right? He, he, he draws so much wealth because he, he understands the Greek language. Sometimes I wish we could do that, but I don't have nowhere near the, the brain capacity, I don't think. The Greek word for humility is this word. I can't even say it. That's why it's written up there. Tapana fruse. Is that how you would say it? I don't know. That sounds pretty good. Which means lowliness of mind and the crouching submissiveness of a slave. Let's be honest. Corrupting pride lurks behind all discord in all the dimensions of our relating to others. It's the mother of all sins. It's the root and fountain of all types of evil and only humility through Christ's example and his powerful indwelling presence can neutralize its terribly toxic effects, whether in our natural family or in our church community. I look at the humility of Christ. Although he could claim to be king, he didn't. Although he could have easily taken himself off of that cross, he didn't. He humbled himself to the will of God and was stricken for our sake. So although we can be claiming our rights, our privileges, who we are, our social status, or if you come from a system that has a caste kind of system, although you could do that, there is no room for that in church life. We all come in on the same level. Every one of us. There is no hierarchy. We are all in humble submission to Christ. That is Christ-likeness. As he humbly submitted to his Father, so we humbly submit to him. There's the pattern for the church. Is that helpful? Yeah? Okay, cool. The second one, we reflect uh, the family of Christ when we are filled with gentleness. And this has to do with our attitude toward others. So the first thing, if we're humble about ourselves and that we see ourselves as a servant of all, then the second thing needs to be that we would actually enact that servant heart and serve all. True? So this has to do with our attitude toward others. The Greek word is uh, uh, protes or protes or however you want to say it. It refers to meekness or self-control of the strong and it doesn't mean weakness in any way because Jesus although he had all power girded himself with a cloth knelt down and washed the feet of his disciples that was a very meek act it wasn't weak at all it's a sense that on it's the contrary to weakness it's it is the gentleness of the strong 
whose strength is harnessed for the greater good. It is having all my powers yielded to and under the control of Christ. We have Jesus' personal example when it comes to these twin characteristics in his word. Matthew eleven twenty nine. These two words can be found. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle. Protes. And I am humble. Tapanafruze. In heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Not only was Jesus humble, but he was gentle. You see? If we are to be Christ-like and therefore reflect the hope of the world as a church body, we must be humble and gentle. To take his yoke involves receiving Christ as one saviour and yielding to his lordship by acknowledging when we are not humble and by admitting where we have, been, we have spiritual poverty spots, which you can see in Matthew 5, 3. And then, as we personally cooperate with the Holy Spirit, Jesus will gradually change us into genuinely gentle and humble children of God. This is the revolutionary and miraculous process Paul is explaining in 2 Corinthians three sixteen and 18, when he says, But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have heard that, Veil, who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. See, you can hear there what Paul's saying. It's not an instant thing. You don't automatically become humble and gentle, do you? It's a process. It's a life journey. But it comes with a heart that says, I'm humble before God and I will admit when I make a mistake. And I will turn from that action and I will choose to live Christ-like. We can do that as the children of God. No other place can you do that. Right? You do that in your workplace, you're going to get punished for it. Okay? You do that in your home life, you might get punished for it. Your wife might beat you around the ears or something. Right? But to God, you can come and you can be humble and you say, I am wrong. Help me to be the person you have created me to be. The third one, the third thing that we need to see, the characteristic that we have to see is this sense that we are to be patient. This has to do with our attitude towards provocation or provocation. What's provocation? It's where you're being provoked. Yeah? Sometimes you're being provoked to all rough. You might want to get angry and punch someone. You might want to do something that's, that's out of your right and responsibility to do. But you need to show patience in this area. The Greek word is... Uh, Macrothymia. It is about being long-tempered. Mm. It is being long-suffering towards aggravation or aggravating people. And the capacity to endure discomfort without fighting back. And do you know what? All of us have at least one aggravating person in our life. And I believe God allows that person to remain in our sphere. Yeah. Imagine what Paul was talking about when he's talking about his thorn in the flesh. Could have been an aggravating person. Yeah? And God allowed it. Three times I prayed and three times it stayed. <laughs> yeah? God doesn't take that person away. Why? Because he's growing you through that person. He's developing patience in you. Who's, who's been dumb enough to pray for patience? 
<laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So you see what I'm talking about, eh? Instantly, I'm sure like Sarah's, Sarah's testimony, instantly there was the opportunity to see growth. And in this case, God sent someone. Yeah? That's cool. Awesome. So it's about being long-tempered. It's about being uh, able to bear under discomfort. Okay. The fourth point, the fourth characteristic. Christ-likeness requires forbearance. It's a different word, okay, but it's similar. This has to do with our attitude toward weakness in others. It's not just about putting up with the fact that they're, they're, they're attacking you, but it's actually forbearing that they have weaknesses that they're yet to overcome. This happens in church life all the time, doesn't it? You know, the amount of times that we've been called or I've been called to say, please come and mediate this conversation, it sort of one, makes you wonder. On one side, you're like, you're so overjoyous that you get the opportunity to, to see growth. But on the other side, you're like, why is this petty thing causing so much disharmony? This thing that has been allowed to grow into something that is monstrous in the life of someone else. You know? Whereas Christian love and unity would draw us into fixing the problem quickly. The weakness in others. The word is, uh, I can't even say this one. Come on, guys. Help me out. Ohomone. Yeah, okay, I got it close. That's good. It means bearing and tolerating people. And it is practical outworking of patience or long-suffering. So it's not just having patience, it's outworking patience. Okay. We all have that one person who aggravates us. I've said that. And sometimes it's deeply. But we must learn these people are sent in a way to see us grow in Christ-likeness. I had a man that I used to work with. And uh, he was put there to make me grow. And uh, I was put there to knock him out. Um, <laughs> it's funny that. I never did praise the Lord. Um, but I was 16, 17. And uh, that was everything that was in me at the time was I wanted to take this guy out even though he was my boss. And uh, I remember the guy step, another guy stepped in the middle of, uh, of a confrontation we had one day. And uh, he said, go outside. So I went outside and moved some steel, you know some steel and uh, got rid of my aggression and uh, the next week I was moved to a different area I wonder what happened there I think it got to boiling point and I think about that and I think wow I I missed that opportunity to growth and God sent two more people along Um, (laughs) I I worked there for 18 years so it was over it was over a period of time so it took me a long time because I can be thick and uh, God God brought these people into my life and uh, one of those people um, I became to cherish as a dear friend while I worked there. And, uh, you know, he challenged me. He inspired me. We started at a very similar time, but he irked me like you wouldn't believe. His competitiveness just rubbed off on my competitiveness. And, you know, the boss prospered because, you know, he had two of the best salesmen that he could ever have. But, uh, you know, I didn't. I suffered. And, uh, and, and this guy, you know, I pray for him, not all the time, but every now and then I remember him because he's going through some... Uh, troubles with his health at the moment and and uh, i love this guy but why do i love him because god taught me forbearance and he used him to teach me forbearance and i was i remember the day clearly that i jumped in my old hj ute and uh, started up the v8 and i took off out the driveway uh, at work and uh, there was a few loose stones so i obviously did something i shouldn't have done and uh, i remember that quite clearly and god spirit hit me and convicted me in that moment and he said pray for him if you can't pray for him, then you haven't forgiven him. And I pulled over that ute and I prayed for him. And God did a work in my life. He taught me forbearance. 
to understand that this man has weaknesses that I can't control. And I need to give him grace in those weaknesses. And you know what? Those graces saw us become close. And never to the point that he's like a brother, but we're close. We can go up and see each other and talk. And I was able to share into his life one time and, and, and let him know that I, I, I believed he had unforgiveness in his heart. You know, God t- showed me something in his life. And, and uh, I really pray that that word will bring fruit into his life. And um, you know, that's, that's just what God does as he teaches us forbearance. We've got to look at these, see, these things and see them as opportunities to share Christ and not see them as an attack on our personal self. Amen? Number five, the first four characteristics cannot work their miraculous transforming power without love. So you discover love and you'll discover how to work out humility, how to work out patience, how to work out forbearance, how to work out, what was the other one? Gentleness. Who is love? Yeah, very good. The word agape is actually used here in this passage. We can only make these monumental shifts as we, uh, in our overall life attitude because Christ's selfless and sacrificial love toward us. The scriptures and life experience teach us that only Jesus can break the entrenched self-serving orientation that is inherent in all of us. The Greek word agape, which Paul uses to describe this divine kind of love, is about seeking the highest good of people. And the good news is that this limitless love potential is now in us through the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. While we live in this world, Not one of us is going to become perfect. And never forget that your birth name is sinner and that only your adopted name is saint. And this life change that is termed a new creation can only come through the presence and power of Jesus Christ. You see that in these scriptures. We won't read them. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21, Galatians 4, 4, 7, and Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. We did a series on that last year. This is why we have no choice but to accept, forgive, and genuinely love each other in spite of our many faults and sins. This is all in the church, people. Right? Don't, don't, don't think this is about because Steve shared a testimony about his workplace. This all begins here. It all begins with your attitude toward the person you're sitting next to or the person you're not sitting next to because you chose not to, because there's something there. This all starts there. And when you encounter the true selfish love, selfless love of agape, you can truly put aside your differences and let love become that which takes precedence in your life. We have no choice but to accept, forgive, and genuinely love each other in spite of our many faults and sins. So let the divine love potential that is in you flow out of you as you continually learn to yield to the Holy Spirit and to allow him to build the life-changing character of Christ in you. Paul urges us to pursue this when he says, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Galatians (laughs) 4.19 It's a great description, isn't it? That he's in the pains of childbirth, laboring, praying for you. Hmm. 
The sixth one, the sixth characteristic is that Paul asserts that as the Godhead are strongly united, so should our church family be. And this should involve our best efforts. The Greek word is uh, spudazontes. Spudazontes. That sounds pretty good to me. I'm not Greek, so that sounds good. All right. And Paul uses this word to tell us to be zealously diligent concerning unity. Our attitude towards the unity and cohesiveness of the church family is of foremost importance. And Paul is begging the Ephesians to put 100% into this effort. And to do it now and to really mean it. It's a pretty big word, isn't it? Every effort now and every best effort we can put in. The Lord's words cannot be clearer about taking the proactive reconciling action. Matthew 5, 23 to 24 says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. So if you've got an offense with someone within the body, then it hinders your worship unto God. Yeah. Matthew eighteen fifteen. If your brother or sister sins, go out and point out their faults just between the two of you. Not publicly, the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, we make every effort for the unity. And the potential happened with another person in the church that there was a misunderstanding between me and that person. And, and uh, instantly when that person left, Holy Spirit said, Steve, they heard you wrong. And it can happen. People hear us wrong all the time. We try our best efforts to speak the way that we believe we need to speak. But when people hear you wrong, you've now got opportunity for offense to sneak in and the enemy will play on that and let me tell you the enemy grabbed that and made it into an offense but i instantly because i heard the spirit i instantly shot that person a text message and said we need to sort this out i believe you've taken offense and i believe that offense between you and i is not good and they left it for a little while and then they came back and said no no i'm all right no no i'm all right and meanwhile the enemy's chipping away at their thoughts so I rang them and I said, I'm coming around. No, 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 I'm, no, you're busy. No, I'm coming around. And I went around and I spent an hour and a half with that person. I explained what I meant and I won back my, my I'll say brother, but it was a sister. I won back my brother and it was all well. We were able to pray and we saw that God triumphed because I will not allow something to dis, de, detract from the unity that God is trying to bring in this family. And it's a good model, isn't it? You, you apply that to your life, you instantly go and make right that which either you did wrong or that which you believe someone has misheard you. And that's what it is to strive for unity. Amen? Lastly, we become really united when we make ourselves willing prisoners of peace. I've got to finish. This has to do with our attitude towards our legitimate rights. We've all got rights, yep. We know that, don't we? It's my right to do whatever I want. I heard a song about that yesterday. I heard a song about that on, on the bus coming in on the youth the other night as my boys were playing Bon Jovi in the background. It's my life. Uh, you know that song? Yeah, it's my life. Mm. Yeah, you make that decision and see how you go. The Greek word is uh, sundemos. 
sundemos. It has to do with that which binds people together, like the bonds that held a prisoner captive. We become really united when we make ourselves willing prisoners of peace. We bind ourselves together with the bonds of peace. If you want to be Christ-like, we need to seek peace in our life, individually and as a body. And I think as I've watched Life Source Church grow over the last 16 years, 17 years, I've witnessed the bonds of peace at work in many different leadership groups through oversight, through pastoral meetings, through coordinator meetings. I've seen this bond of peace working out. That although I've got rights and although, although the, my ministry might suffer, I will lay down my arms so that we can have unity. And I've seen that outwork and I've seen it progress and I've seen it develop the people that have been involved with that in very precious ways. And what I hope is that through the bonds of peace, each and every one of you will continue to grow. Because there's seven things there you can find in Ephesians chapter 4 that as a church, if we focus on those as individuals, if we apply them in our life, Christ will be valued, Christ will be uplifted, Christ will be glorified, and God will start to see a church that not only meets together, not only prays together, not only fellowships together, not only enjoys a meal together, not only worships together, but a church who will see God add to their number daily because he can trust us, because we're not going to tread over them. We're not going to we're not going to break them because ourselves have been modeled into the perfect person of Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I give you glory and I give you honor. There's so much more that can be said. But Lord, I pray that those words, this passage out of Ephesians 4, that is, there is one Father, one hope, one faith, one gospel, one spirit, let there be one church unified in the purposes of God, with one vision, outworking the purposes of God and seeing one family. Lord, we pray for the people who are not in your family yet. We pray that they would come into the fold. We believe, Lord God, that when we, when we put down our pride and we take up the character of Christ, we will truly see a Acts 2 church in this place. Lord, I pray for wisdom. pray for discernment. I pray for guidance. I pray for the gift of your Holy Spirit that would ignite in each of our lives. Not for the purposes of blessing us, but for the purposes of the world. Birthing us unity and hope and love. Help us live for you, God. In all we pray. Amen.